Today's episode is brought to you by Airtable. Airtable makes it easy to create a completely custom editorial calendar that can evolve along with your team. And it plays nicely with Slack, too. Join the content teams of places like BuzzFeed Motion Pictures, Group 9 Media, and Condé Nast Entertainment. Visit Airtable.com slash Recode to get $50 off and free credits. Today's show is brought to you by Qualcomm, which is part of the daily lives of billions of people around the world. They may not be the name you think of when you think of smartphones, but they invented all the stuff smartphones rely on to be so smart. Qualcomm is why you love your smartphone. Learn more at qualcomm.com slash we invent. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm laughing because Sarah Lacey is laughing. She's laughing at my <laughs> at me right now. I like your radio voice. Uh, you like that's a radio voice. It's my voice. Sarah, among other things, is the CEO of Pando Daily. She's an author, most recently of "The Uterus Is a Feature, Not a Bug." It's a good title, Sarah. Thank you. Can, you. Um, you can buy this book immediately as you hear this podcast. So, as of today, so go well, buy the book and make Sarah typing. happy. Sarah, I'm going to describe this as part memoir, part manifesto. Uh, language is important. So, how do you feel about both those words? Yeah. No, I think that's right. And it's hard to do kind of wrap both of those into a book. The people who said no to this proposal mostly said no because they were like, I don't know how you're going to do both of those in one book. So I was going to make a joke about a uterus, <laughs> but I'm not going to make a joke about a uterus. <laughs> Tell So memoir we get, that's part of your life, right? Mm-hmm. You've done a bunch of things. Um, you've written books before. So this is not your not entire life story. It's chunks of it. Right. So we get that part. The manifesto is what? Well, The reason, what drove me to want to do this book, and as you know, because we're in the same industry, the period in which I wrote this book was an incredibly crazy time for me and for my company and my family and my personal life. But, uh, you know, I felt like I, I needed to write the book and needed to write it right then because I was just constantly struck by everything I had been told as, you know, a young woman, as an adult about what motherhood would do to me and the juxtaposition of what motherhood actually did to me. And I was I felt like I was, you know, told for say 15 years of adulthood that I would just completely change. I would become ec- unrecognizable from the person I was before. This whole talk of this like biological imperative as soon as you hold a baby in your arms, it's like suddenly every ambition, everything you held dear, everything you'd worked for your professional life would be like wiped away. So for context, right? Mm-hmm. You're a mother, you have two kids, mm-hmm. you are a CEO, you're a company founder, you're a working mom, you are now a single mom. Yeah. And so if people don't know your backstory. Yeah. Um, they will now by the time we're done with this. Um, <laughs> and your point is being a mother and a working mother are good things. Yes. They're they're not they're not Which mutually is exclusive. Contrary to what about forty percent of the population thinks. Like about forty percent of Americans, according to Pew, think it's bad for society if women work. Right. And so you're not only saying this is not only something I wanted to do and a right. choice, but actually it's been good for me. It's been it's good for my kids and it's good for my company that I have both of these things in my exactly, life. Exactly, exactly. And you know, the lie that I was told for so long was it would be this untenable, horrible thing. And I found after I had kids, I was better at everything. I was more confident. My voice as a writer was better. I could write quicker. I was more productive. I became more successful. I mean, the exact opposite of what I was told would happen happened. And Sounds easy. I felt we like should that all was do important. it. You should, you're, you, if you had it, only you had a uterus, Peter, think of how much more successful you would be. We, we can talk about the patriarchy. There's a lot of patriarchy <laughs> talk in this book. This is, I don't know if this is the right way to put it, not bad timing to have a, a manifesto about women and the patriarchy and, and gender roles yeah. coming when out I, right now. When I pitched this book, I thought we would be sitting here in 2017 with our first female president. So the world changed dramatically as I was writing it. That is one of the things that has changed. Um, and But just, and again, contextually, you know, I think the best known book in the genre is the Sheryl Sandberg Lean mm-hmm. In. So you're addressing professional women. You acknowledge in the book that a lot of the stuff you're talking about has is different if you're not a successful upper middle class white woman, right? right? But if you compare this to the Sheryl Sandberg book, other books in that genre, is is there a major? What's the major distinction that you're making that wasn't in previous books? That's a really great question. I think the biggest distinction is. 
The Sheryl Sandberg genre is um, sort of what people call careerism feminism. It's this idea of let's all accept we live in a patriarchy. Here's how you as, you know, largely an educated upper middle class white woman can hack your way through this system and have a good career on your own. Here's the world as it is. Here's how you can survive and adapt and succeed. Yeah. I think my book and I think the moment that our country is in right now is very much about, you know, we need to overturn the system and the system isn't okay. So one of the biggest disagreements that I have with sort of the lean-in canon is the whole idea that the solution is a 50-50 marriage. I mean, I think the whole, all of the books advising women if they want balance to seek a 50-50 partner are ultimately supporting a patriarchy because these books are telling women to negotiate with their spouse that they should be able and kind of sell him on this idea that they should be able to have a career and why it'll be great for him. And I don't think women should be selling anyone on the life they want to lead. So your argument is, look, it's not just enough to sort of navigate your own personal life. And obviously everyone has to navigate their own personal life, but we're not going to fix things unless we structurally fix things. Yeah. That's a heavy book. It's a heavy book, but it's a heavy time. I mean, and I think the big change from, I mean, Lena came out when I was pregnant with my daughter and she's four. And, and, I, and so this has changed rapidly. I mean, our, back then, I remember thinking that Lena was so radical for a woman in the tech industry to be saying, um, no one talked about motherhood. No one talked about like pumping during meetings. No one talked about this kind of stuff. No one identified as feminist even four years ago. I mean, it was a radical book at the time. And I think it's amazing that now something like something like Lean In appears almost old-fashioned in a moment when it's all about intersectionality. It's all about, you know, the 70% of people who are not in the, you know, base of 30% of people who are just fine with the hatred in America right now, you know, banding together and doing something about it. Because this is a memoir, one of the things you talk about is the idea that this was not the way you viewed the world not that long yeah. ago, yeah. right? Um, I mean, you describe my son's yourself six. In, in, in your twenties, cool is, dude, is cool Sarah dude. <laughs> yeah, so this is it reminds me. What's the what's from Gone Girl? Yeah, uh, the uh, cool girl, the cool girl, right? That's yeah. the variant on it, right? So you're the you're you're professionally successful, but you can hang with the guys. You're a woman. You're definitely uh, feminine, but you can play and you can hang. Right. And I think you say something effective. Yet I, I wasn't sympathetic to a lot of feminist arguments. So what changed your mind? Was it literally just having kids? It was really motherhood. It was, um, you know, I, just even being pregnant was such a transformative experience for me because, you know, as you go along your career in a male-dominated industry, pretending to be a guy and being, you know, the recipient of a lot of benevolent sexism that you don't even necessarily realize is benevolent sexism, you know, you start to just really resent a lot of things about being a woman. And I think I resented so much about being a woman. And I think by the time I got to, to having children, you know, I felt like being a woman was like a, ne a net negative in my life. And, um, and it wasn't because. until— well, because there were still limitations. I mean, I would do I could go to baseball games and I could, you know, be one of the guys, but then there would there would come that awkward moment when someone hits on you. There would come like these, you know, I would hear something someone would say about me. As a woman in this industry, Jesus, the stuff that was said about me in public media. I mean, when I started at TechCrunch, there was a poll on how long I would last because the commoners had driven off every woman Published off that Published by TechCrunch, right? No, published by someone else. Okay. I think, you know, I think link, probably linked to by TechCrunch. Right. But I uh, know they, were, was a they weren't that, quite that callous. Yeah. But, you know, it was there. I was always bumping up against these things where I couldn't totally be a guy and where it was it was frustrating and it was upsetting and it could be offensive and it could be heartbreaking. So I just felt like it was a negative. You know, I couldn't disappear into the world of men as much as I wanted to. And when I became pregnant, I mean, I was fortunate that I had really easy pregnancies, but it was not just that. It was like I felt like a superhero. I just I felt like I could suddenly like shoot spider webs out of my palms. I just felt like in awe and amazed at what my body, which I hated and sort of resented for so much of my adult life, was like able to do. And it just totally changed this whole sense of where I found strength and where I found power and that was that was really the beginning of it. You are an accomplished technology journalist, read a bunch of books, created your own company. Um, now you've written a book that's specifically about gender and motherhood and it says uterus in the title. Um, <laughs> I can't promote it on Facebook. Really? Yeah. Because I can't, I can't do paid promotion because uterus is in the title. 
Jew hater, fine. Uterus not. You can't. You, you literally cannot promote her on Facebook. If only you knew Sheryl Sandberg, and maybe she could <laughs> help. But, but related to that, so Sheryl Sandberg is the COO of Facebook, right? Number mm-hmm. two in the org chart. Incredibly powerful position. Facebook's an incredibly powerful company. In a lot of people's minds, she's the lean-in woman. Do you have any trepidation about coming out with a book? You're, st- you're still running Pando. You're still doing mm-hmm. technology journalism that is explicitly defining you as woman talking about her kids and motherhood and ha- being identified as that person as opposed to journalist. No, not at all. And in fact, like if when I'm long gone and dead, if I'm only remembered and thought of for this book, for nothing lady. would make me happier. Unspeakable title, lady. <laughs> No, I think it's I think it is so important. And it's like when I've talked to women and I mean, before even writing the book, I would talk to young women who felt like I did, felt this sense of terror about becoming mothers. And I would just say to them, like, it's going to be fine. Like, it is going to be fine. You've got this. It is not as bad as people have made it out to be. And they would just be like, really? You're the first person who's ever told me that. Like, if I can go tell every young woman in the world that. Everything everyone has said about this horrible, weak, debilitating, you know, curse of motherhood is a lie. Like, that would be such a better life's work than anything I've done in my career till now. I'm not well prepared enough for this interview but because I would have brought the name of the book. But there was in the Atlantic essays yeah. book about having it all and basically saying yeah, you, you can't Amory do it. One. Right. Yeah. That it is a well-meaning but but mm-hmm. wrong myth to say that you can do all these things. You literally just – there's not enough hours in the day. And even if you – by the way, you have a Sheryl Sandberg-sized support staff at yeah. work and at home, you're one person. You can't do all of these things. And you say, no, that's not true. Yeah. I don't think it's true. I think part of it is – Part of what's insidious about the patriarchy is this sense of guilt and perfection that's put in women's minds, this sense that you can't be a perfect mother unless you're 100% on call to your children, and you can't be a perfect employee unless you're 100% on call to your employers. And so if that is your definition of having it all, then you know I guess you're in Anne-Marie Slaughter's camp. That is not my definition of having it all. I think most men are not 100% on call to their employers, and I think that it's healthy for your kids not to be 100% percent on call to them. You know, I also feel like, you know, once you're, when you first have a baby, it seems very untenable because you don't understand how quickly things are going to change. But by the time your kids are in school, I mean, so I don't have anything like a Sheryl Sandberg staff. I don't have a husband. I have no family that lives near me. And I don't even have a nanny or any childcare right now. And I have two children and, you know, work about 11 hours a day. You know, I wrote a book on like spare daddy weekends. I mean, I, you know, I actively took on other stuff as I got, as my nanny left. You know, it's doable. They're in school. They're in school from eight to five. And I feel like, you know, and, and I don't just feel like this. There's actually data that I cite in the book. Once your kids are in school, stay at home moms only spend something like 15% more quality time with their kids than working moms. The rest of the day is housework, laundry, organizing lives, being the COO of a household, I have a super messy house. Right. So if having it all is having like, I remember when I first had Eli talking, I was talking to uh, Kara Swisher and she was like, yeah, you're just going to follow around your nanny and refold things because they won't do it right. And I'm like, wow, you and I are really different human beings. If you only saw my house, my house is a disaster and I'm fine with my house being I'm a trying disaster. I'm trying to picture Kara folding laundry. She said she follows around her nanny, and when she's yeah. gone, then she redoes it because she doesn't like how she did it. Like, that isn't I'm going to ask her life. about that. I'm not going to do it right now, but I'm going to take a break so we can all just gather ourselves and also hear from our fine sponsors. We'll be right back. Today's show is brought to you by Away Travel. These guys make awesome suitcases. They ask thousands of people how they pack, why they travel, and what bugs them most about their luggage. And boom, they made an affordable, high-quality suitcase that solves all of those problems. Away suitcases and accessories make the perfect gift for everyone on your list this holiday season. They've got a lifetime guarantee, and there's a 100-day trial. I've got one in my house. I use it to travel. It's pretty cool. Looks slick. Carries lots of stuff. And it's got this awesome charger in it. So you can charge your phone, your tablet, whatever. You do not have to attach yourself to a wall, which is undignified. It's also usually dirty, and usually there's about four other people trying to charge this thing at the same time. This solves all those problems. You charge your whatever into your Away suitcase. It's great. A single charge of the Away carry-on will charge your iPhone five times 
every away customer in the contiguous U.S., those are the 48 states, but not Hawaii and Alaska, can get free shipping on their new suitcase. And because you listen to Recode Media, you can get something extra 20 bucks off. Go to awaytravel.com slash media. Use the promo code media during checkout. Remember, these are great holiday gifts, so you should get one for the holiday for you or someone you like very much. Go to awaytravel.com slash media. Use the promo code media. We're back here with, with Sarah Lacey, friend of Jason Hirschhorn, one of our favorite guests. Um, <laughs> Jason was the first guy to hit the hour mark. I don't think we're going to do that today because you're, you're time-pressed because you're doing a bunch of stuff because you've got a new book to promote. Mm-hmm. The book is called? A Uterus is a Feature, Not a Bug. The Working you will Woman's not see Guide on... to Overthrowing the Patriarchy. You, will not... you sure Facebook didn't ding it because it says patriarchy? Did they tell you? <laughs> did, they... No. did someone say uterus is a problem? No, the ad got returned because of uterus. <laughs> If only the Russians had been trying to promote uteruses, Hillary would be in office. This is book two, book three for you? Book three. Do you make money doing books? I make money. My publishers have not made money. (laughs) Yeah. Do you ever think about, you know, you're in a business where people talk about disrupting stuff and Mm -hmm. new models. Do you ever think, maybe I'll self-publish or there's there's another way to do this or you like the model where they give you an advance and you write a book and then – yeah, and it it's not just that. I think one of the reasons that writing books has been really good for me is it's one of those last things that if you go through a publisher, not everyone can do. And I think that there's something about that gatekeeper, gatekeeper yeah. media world that gives you a lot of credibility. So with my first book, I was lucky enough to get a really great bonus that we'll never unfortunately earn back. You know, but then it was like it was not just that. It was after that I was the person who had written this book and I couldn't believe how much more opportunity I got, how every job offer I got seemed to have like another zero on it. Like I was really stunned at the difference. And then my second book actually has earned back, but I got a lousy, lousy, lousy advance on it. And, you know, and with that one, I made a ton of money off speaking gigs after it. That seems to be the model, right? It's like the realistic model for making money off books because generally the advances, even if they're a good advance, right, it's paid in chunks and you've got to pay your own bills, um, is that if you can do something and if you're slightly cynical is the wrong word, practical about it, do something that has the ability for you to do paid speaking afterwards, that's where you can really make your money. Yeah. My second book was brutal. It was about entrepreneurship and emerging markets, and I spent 40 weeks traveling through the emerging world. So that book cost me money to do. And so I was sort of relieved that I made money from speaking gigs. So this one, you did the research where the researchers in your own house. Yeah, exactly. I lived it. (laughs) No, I went to Iceland for this book. Um, I, you know, relied on some like travel and reporting that I'd done in China. Like there's some there's some other places I had to go and things I had to do, but it was nowhere near as extreme as that second book. But it is a memoir. There's Mm -hmm. there's crazy stories in it. I want to ask you about a few of them. I've had a crazy six years. So did you write this after you were divorced? Yes. So you were you were divorced. You were in a new relationship. You said, "Now I'm going to write about this." And you talk about that relationship. You talk about divorcing your first husband, your husband, <laughs> my only husband, your husband, <laughs> and the fact that you're now in a relationship with Paul Carr, who mm-hmm. is your. It's the first time I've talked about this publicly. Right. So it's in the book. I was going to ask that. Have you talked about that publicly before? No, we don't hide it. And like he'll go to things like the lobby with me and industry events. Right. So people know it's not a secret. But, you know, after the life that we've both had, we don't really feel a need to like invite people into our lives. So if you're you're not in the Sarah Lee (laughs) universe, just to explain this, uh, Paul Carr is your co-founder? What's the best way to describe him? We acquired his company. So he kind of became my co-founder. You guys both launched public – you both worked at TechCrunch together. Yeah, and we had actually – even before then, we we had – written both of our first books at the same times. And so we like talked on the phone every day and kind of were informal writing partners and best friends during that process. And then we worked at TechCrunch together. We both left TechCrunch at the same time. He started Not Safe for Work Corp and I started Pando and then Pando bought Not Safe for Work Corp. Right. And then at some point then you guys started (laughs) started dating and you're dating dating now and he's he watching the kids back in San Francisco? (laughs) No, he's here. The kids are with their dad. Okay. In addition to just being a crazy story, um, I think one of the parts that, about the story that's, that's particularly interesting is you were in the middle. You were the subject of this huge Uber story. Yeah. For a long time, you've been going at Uber. And then at one point, they you can tell the story about, about Uber and the dinner and Ben Smith and BuzzFeed. And then we'll get to the Paul Carr part. Yeah. So um, we, we had been really critical about this company. And I particularly – been critical about their treatment of women and what I viewed as a just fundamentally misogynistic culture at this company. And it was, you know, things like um, 
when we were – some one of my reporters, um, actually Carmel, who then worked for you guys, um, she was writing about some of the stuff with background checks. And, you know, executives were saying things to her like, well, sure, maybe that woman got sexually assaulted, but she was dressed provocatively and she was drunk. And, like, the total lack of empathy and morality – to talk about one of your customers that way who'd been assaulted using your service. At the same time, you were trying to get laws changed and using the defense that you were helping women get home safely was sort of like too much for me to handle. <laughs> and like that was one of many things I just found and deeply And you were an early critic of, of Uber when for a long time it was n- almost entirely positive coverage about yes. them. And everyone we were was really – uh, unless you were in the taxi voice. business – Everyone was sympathetic to what they were doing and, and, and plus, again, unless you were really deep into it, you probably didn't understand the company culture that much anyway. You just knew yeah. they were a car service. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty brutal. And that, you know, and look, we, as you know, like we're a small publication. It's not like what we wrote about Uber was going to meaningfully affect their downloads. But where we were having an impact was that, you know, we're deeply republication by the people who are very close to the company and close to the founders. And, you know, I think uh, I've heard many anecdotal cases that we were hurting their ability to hire certain people. We were asking a lot of hard questions. So at a minimum, you were an irritant and you were on their radar. And you know this because there's this dinner that Uber has a press dinner. They invite a bunch of journalists. Yeah, and it was like one of their many attempts to reboot Travis Kalanick's image and try to make him seem like a nice guy. And so while he's doing that on one end of the table, the other end of the table, his sort of alpha bro um, sort of protected A-list guy, Basically the number Emil two Michael. guy at the company, yeah. basically. Emil Michael was at the other end of the table detailing to Ben Smith um, from BuzzFeed this sort of really disturbing plan, um, particularly, you know, as he phrased it, and this is secondhand from Ben, you know, to try to, like, d- shut me up by going after my family. And he, you know, there's so many accounts later on about what was said or not said at this dinner. But, you know, he's tried to say it was like a drunken rant. He was blowing off steam. But, like, he detailed a pretty precise plan. Right. There's no debate that he was talking about you. The yeah. only debate is precisely what he said and whether or not he was kidding about a plan to and what they had already up. been right. what they had already been doing. But, he, I mean, he did detail, like, a head count, the type of people he wanted to hire, a budget. Like, it was pretty precise. And, by the way, contextually, right, like, yeah. um, now that we've seen the reporting about Harvey Weinstein and what he's done, yeah. uh, the, who he was paying to to follow journalists, to follow women who yeah. are accusing him of harassment. Certainly Susan it's, Fowler has talked about the company doing these things to her. Right, so it's not unheard we, of that this would happen. We saw a court case where the judge ordered that emails be decrypted that showed they were doing this to a plaintiff and a plaintiff's lawyer that was coming against them. They had hired a firm called Ergo, which had ex-CIA people, and it, it was clear they had hired this firm before. And then worst of all was the report that Emil Michael, same guy, had his lieutenant obtain medical records from a woman right. in India raped using their service in order to discredit her. And that's the story that finally pushed him out of the company. Yeah. And so it was, you know, for years people wanted to, the company wanted to paint a picture that I was hysterical and blowing this out of proportion when we've now seen at least three examples of them doing this. So what, what do you think they thought they were going to uncover or tell people about? Well, from what from what I can understand, I don't think they had started doing any oppo research in my life because they just thought I was, there was a there, there. I was already getting divorced. Uh-huh. If they had done any, they would have known it because the idea was trying to break up my marriage and be, me being a protective mother. I would back off because I, you know, because of that. I mean, they wanted to destroy my home life. So, and this is getting around to the book. Is there anything that's in the book that you're writing about now publicly that sort of you think would have come out through their oppo campaign oh no no no. i mean the things that he detailed to ben weren't true so i mean as far as i know they were just going to make a bunch of shit up okay but but i think had they you know maybe that would have changed if they had followed me but you know look i i have lived much of my professional life being like written about and dissected on sites like Ballywag. So, like, I just, I don't think there was really much and you, for them And you to took uncover. it super seriously, right? You had guards at your house. Well, once it became a really, first of all, like, oppo research isn't Googling someone. Like, there's, you know, they're following you, they're following your kids. It's a pretty intense thing. And once the story became really big, I mean, I'm sure, like, anyone who's kind of been the subject of this kind of thing, once you're on, like, the cover of that many, like, newspapers, you're on television, you're being painted as the enemy of this company, and this company has millions of drivers that work for them that are angry, that may or may not have passed background checks. Like, it's not it's, it's, it's not that hard to understand why this, like, rapidly sort of invo- 
evolved to something that could have been really dangerous for my family. So you had guards at your house for some period. And and t- going with us everywhere. And then you've got this scene that you talk about where your husband's there, mm-hmm. you're still married. Paul Carr is there. You're all sitting in well, the we're living separated. room. Together. We're separated. Okay, yeah. but you're all in the living room together. Yeah. You're not dating Paul yet, but you <laughs> are going to date Paul yeah. and sort of headed that way, but you guys haven't discussed We've that. We've had this weird conversation. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile, there's a guard yes. out front, like, getting your Indian food. Yeah, because I wasn't allowed to answer the door. <laughs> so that's a scene. It's totally weird. So Paul and I had had this conversation where, would, in the process of Jeff and I getting divorced, I was like, I am never going to date again. Because, like, my life was just crazy. And my kids were completely living with me. I had the insanity of this company. I had a company that was, do, you know, <laughs> doing oppo research, part of which is, like, people going undercover to find things out about you. I was still being, like, written about and trashed on Gawker all the time. So it was like, there's no way I can just meet someone. I can't date anyone in the tech industry. My life is so messed up. I had so many trust issues. I was like, I'm never going to date anyone. And I was, like, explaining this one night to Paul. And I was like, I mean, it was like a long, long, long list of all this stuff. And he just sat there sort of quietly. And at the end of what I was saying, he said, you realize everything you've described that you would need in a relationship is our relationship, except we don't have sex. And then, like, we didn't talk for the rest of the night. And it was just awkward. And it was just, like, out there for months until this weird night in my living room. And so can we credit, you know, Michael and Travis and, and Ben Smith with getting you together with Paul Carr? Yeah, weirdly okay. enough. Congratulations, gentlemen. You <laughs> I had don't a love think that connection. was Emil Michael's intention. <laughs> and what kind of thought did you put or not put into whether or not you were going to tell that story in the book? Um, well, I mean, again, I, or I don't Or any of the think... parts about your divorce and your relationship. So I don't really get into the divorce. Uh-huh. That's really the only thing that I don't get into in the book because I haven't decided what I'm going to tell my children. About I mean, the divorce. you talk a bit about it, right? You talk about wanting to commit violence to. I mean, <laughs> hypothetically. Yeah. No, there is a there is a lot of backstory there. Uh-huh. That is, I mean, that's you know, look, everyone who gets divorced, there's sort of your public story, and there's the, st- the shit that really went down. And I haven't decided what my kids should know or or not know about it. You had a and line I, in there about I didn't want them to read about it. Telling your husband that you were pregnant again, and that he's surprised that you're pregnant, and that you you were that was not a surprise on your part. And well, you kind of leave it out there and don't go into it. Like, well, huh, I think part of it was we um, we were living in two different cities. Yeah. And we had a newborn. So uh-huh. I just feel like there had not been that many yeah. times we had actually been together in order to get pregnant. And it took a long time for me to get pregnant with Eli. Evie was like this miracle baby in every way. Okay. Like she is a miracle young human being who really I, I kept was re- our family together. But she also was like – it was just this like, how are you pregnant already? I was nursing and like we were living in different cities. I read it as I decided I was going to get pregnant, but I didn't tell my partner. Oh, no. Okay. Well, I was definitely the one driving that train. Yeah. I was for sure the one who was like, no, Eli's going to have a sister. And he would have been, you know, fine. And then one of the one of the things that did come between us is I wanted more kids and he didn't. So back to that idea of writing about it. Did you go to your, your ex-husband? Do you go to Paul and say, just so you know, this is what I want to do? Or what do you think about me doing this? So, I mean, as you know, Paul's written several memoirs himself. And um, in his second book, I, which is about him getting sober, which I was a big part of, when we were friends, I said – back then I was much more private. And I said, I don't want to be in your book if we're friends because that was kind of what he did at that time was write about himself. And he put me in his book anyway over my objections. So I don't really – I didn't really feel like he got a vote. So you, you had that shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, I, and I think he was sort of uh, – he was he was fine with it. You know, it was it was a harder thing for my husband. And I really give him a lot of credit for – you know, he didn't ask me to change anything in the book. He um, really gave me the freedom to do it. But it's painful. I mean, we were together for 15 years. It was a painful divorce. We're in a really, really great place now, which is one reason I didn't want to hash out a lot of what happened because, you know, my kids will never remember us being together and will never remember that period when we were not on good terms. We've been on amazing terms since. And I almost feel like what happened, you know, doesn't really matter. Get this great line here. My personal life on paper is a cautionary tale of a million things you shouldn't do. (laughs) But in practice, it's one of the most balanced, supportive co-parenting arrangements of anyone I know. So that's the 
That's the good part of it. Yeah. No, people I, – I am like the divorce whisperer. Like I was the only divorced mom at preschool. And I remember vividly like coming back from the holidays one year and passing a mom in the stairwell. And I was like, how was your Christmas? And she just you know looked like she had been through the ringer for three weeks. And she was like, we're doing construction on this house. And I had in-laws in town. And the kids are driving me nuts. And, da, da, da. and she was like, what about you? And I was like – I just got back from a yoga retreat in Mexico. There is a little social <laughs> contagion, right? Like once within a social group, once one group gets divorced, and like, oh, you can do that. That's how yeah. that works. There's life on the other side. No, it, I, I mean, like right now, right now, if I were still married and I were here promoting this book, I would have so much guilt. My kids would feel like something had been taken from them for me to be gone. They're just spending time with their dad now, and they spend time with their dad without me all the time. Your time is precious, so I won't take a ton more of it, but I do want to have, I do have some more questions for you. We're going to hear one more quick word from a sponsor. We'll be right back. Today's show is sponsored by HP. They've got a new podcast they're going to tell you about right here. What does machine learning have to do with autonomous driving? How do you build a powerful open source community? Will the cloud really consume the world? Tune in to Stack That, a new podcast from Hewlett Packard Enterprise, to dive into the world of emerging trends and learn how you can leverage this tech for the benefit of your business. Each week, our hosts Byron Reese of GigaOM and Florian Leibert of Mesosphere will tackle a new topic with the help of guests from Airbnb, Google, Confluent, and other industry experts. Check out Stack That on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and news.hpe.com. And make sure to subscribe so you don't miss the latest episodes. Today's show is brought to you by Qualcomm, the company that invented the fundamental technology and everything you love about your phone. From download speeds to stunning photos to GPS, none of it would work the way you want it to work without Qualcomm engineers getting there first. And now, the company that changed everything with a smartphone is about to change everything else. Qualcomm is why you love your smartphone no matter what brand of phone it is. Learn more at Qualcomm with two ms.com slash we invent back here with sarah lacy who's still texting oh i'm she's, here oh, I'm she's still here she I'm can multitask I'll, I'll read <laughs> you'll talk I want to talk about the business that you uh -huh. run pando you started a second business as well you sort of slipped that I as have. on the side yeah. <laughs> chairmanmom.com i went there there's nothing there yet it's, we're, it's, yeah we're it's gonna launch soon okay do you want to talk about the new business or the existing business we can talk about either. Let's do both. Okay. Let's start with the one that doesn't exist yet or has not launched yet. <laughs> Chairmanmom.com. I've got a sense of what it's about, but yeah. you tell me. It's a community for working professional moms. And the idea, it's going to be a subscription community. And um, the, the What's a subscription community? Well, I mean, you pay to be part of it. So it's like $5 a month, and which is part of what's important about it because, you know, you, you want it to be this sort of place where – you know, there's not going to be trolls. There's not going to be mommy wars. There's going to be moderation, but also having a subscription community helps, you know, keep that under control Message as well. boards, listservs. It's going to be a couple of different things, but it's mostly going to be curated question and answer with some content. But the idea is working moms helping each other solve the really hardest problems of work and life that you usually can't discuss anywhere else. It's interesting, right? The professional mom, yuppie mom, whatever adjective you want to use, market, huge, right? Online should be huge, and we're a little bit past this now, but I remember when our kids were younger, my wife was spending time on the Park Slope Parents yeah. Listserv, which is a Yahoo email group yeah. and is super clunky, still in a really effective way to get advice and to mm -hmm. trade strollers or whatever it is, but really – Archaic. Yeah. And, not, and and there's actually been a lot of stuff built for for moms, but it's really mostly dominated by stay-at-home moms. It there's not a lot that's expressly built for professional moms who are, you know, to me, some of the most isolated people. I mean, again, they're kind of judged by society as not being good mothers. Um, if a woman out earns her spouse by even a dollar, the odds of his infidelity go way up. So they're frequently isolated within marriages. Even if they work in a company where there's other working moms, 
because of maternal bias, you have to project you've got everything together. So they feel very isolated at work and frequently isolated in school communities, too, like if you're the only working mom. And so there's a lot of judgment and isolation that these women face all the time, even though 40 percent of American households um, have female breadwinners. I mean, they're doing a lot of heavy lifting in this economy. And there's places, there's not a lot of places they can discuss things they go through, whether it's an issue with a spouse, yeah. whether it's, you know, I have a five-year-old who I think is transgender. What's the best way for me to support him? Right. You know, and, your, and, your, and your argument is there's a distinction between working mom addressing that question and staying home, stay-at-home mom addressing that question. May get to the same answer. Yeah. But there's a different set of factors going in there. Mm-hmm. So that's going to launch one. We're building it now. It's about ready. We're we're hoping to. We were hoping to have it in beta by the time the book came out. And but we you are, know how startups who's go. We? So it's me and Paul, and um, we have a team. We have a couple of developers who are right now on contract. All female developer team, which has been amazing to work with. We have uh, this amazing New York journalist uh, Lily Herman, who's been doing our Mama Bear newsletter, and you know a couple other folks like that. We're hiring a few, few other people right now. Company number two. Still running company number one. Yeah. Running a company is hard. You, you reference a bunch of different times. In, in, in how old is Pando? Um, it's I started on maternity leave in Eli's six. So, so six year old company. Half, six, yeah, a lot of work. And <laughs> I think again in the book you're more candid maybe than you have been publicly about how difficult it's been, how close to failing the company was several times. Now you say it's profitable. Mm-hmm. Generally, don't start the second company while you're still running the first. Or, or what made you decide? All right, we're we're at a place where yeah. this thing we're going to do a second thing. It was a really hard decision, and I really wrestled with this for about a year. And it was—it took me a long time to get to the point of feeling like I really could do it. You know, I was running Pando, and I had this side project of the book, and then I had a side project of the podcast that kind of went into the, my reporting of the book, and then I had a side project where I was doing a dinner every month in my house for female entrepreneurs and VCs. And then that turned into a side project of a Facebook group. And I everything I was doing around working mothers was growing so fast and growing faster than Pando ever did, frankly, and was making me much happier and was providing a lot of value in women's lives. And it just kept exploding and running away with, with me. And I just kind of got to the place where I was like, that needs to be where I'm putting my time. So then what happens to Pando, right? Because Pando is, and you talk about this in the book, like, this is the thing when a founder, when someone starts, very often when someone starts a media company, that media company is them, right? Yeah. They hire other people, other people do work yeah. and they work hard. But if that person is not running it, if yeah. the person whose name is not attached to it is not creating content, it kind of doesn't work, right? Yeah. We've seen a bunch of examples of that. So if you're doing company number two, what happens to company number one? For now, you know, Pando is still like doing its thing. We're not doing any more events. Yeah. So that takes a big chunk of the workload out of Pando. So, you know, we're still doing what we're doing. And, you know, Paul helps do a lot of like the admin stuff around Pando and, you know, making sure the bills get paid, making sure that stuff that as the CEO, I was like much more on top of before. I mostly write for Pando and, you know, spend the rest of my time on Chairman Mom. But, you know, we'll see when Chairman Mom launches what it becomes and we're kind of taking it day by day. So imagining in six months seeing an email or a post saying we're sunsetting Pando or we're pivoting Pando into something or I don't know. sold Pando. We'll see. I don't know. I mean, right now I'm in the middle of reporting a major investigative story that I think is really important that yeah. I'm spending a lot of my time on that's, you know, hopefully going to be on Pando in the next couple of weeks. So it's like, you know, I've been a journalist my whole career and, you know, that part of my life is difficult to let go of. And in some ways the two, con- con- the two companies are complicated. You know, certainly one of Pando's biggest stories over the last couple of years has been bro culture and, you know, a lot of issues around um, sexual harassment and discrimination. And so a lot of things we've been writing about, like, are, are of huge interest to, you know, the potential Chairman Mom audience. But they're different. I mean, I'm not – Chairman Mom is not going to be a content site. And yeah. so, you know, I'm going to want to write something somewhere. Pando also is like 85 percent male audience. You know, Chairman Mom will have a very female-heavy yeah. audience. So in some ways, if you want to impact – change. It's nice to kind of have both of those outlets, a community where moms can help each other and a, and a you know, a, aggressive investigative journalism site where you can, you know, tell people and expose things that are happening. And, you know, I, I want to keep doing both as long as I can. You wrote about startups, startup founders, investors for years, then you entered that world as a participant, mm-hmm. right? 
What did you learn from starting a company, from running a company that you didn't get while you were reporting about that that world? I think just I think the emotional impact of it was what surprised me the most. I mean, I think I knew it was hard. I think I knew a lot, a lot of the mechanics of raising money. I think I knew it'd be easier to raise money before something existed. You know, a lot of things like that that might be surprises to people. I think the, um, the just the emotion of when it's your company and how things impact you and how protective you feel of it and how personal everything feels. And I think probably that was heightened because I was also um, like pregnant and nursing for the first three years of the company. And so I had like a lot of mom hormones. But you really feel this deep sense of responsibility, not only to your employees and not only to your investors, but like to your readers. I mean, my life would be easier, frankly, if like I could just sort of like sunset Pando and move on. But I feel like everyone who's come through and worked for that publication and, um, you know, the, the community that has supported us when, frankly, most of the tech world didn't, you know, those I feel like those people have invested as much of like their blood, sweat and tears in this brand and what it stands for as I have. And, you know, it's it, it is really a deep weird emotional connection. There's the thing you used to hear slash read about a bunch. I think less so now. I think there's probably less startup coverage in some ways than there there was. Mm -hmm. But uh, journalists would write something about a a startup that was critical or they'd point out that it didn't work or something. And they would get feedback saying, why why, why are you being a hater? Or why aren't you being supportive of startups? Or Mm -hmm. why are you anti-startup? Or why are you pro-big media from the East? Any of that. And as someone who would frequently write that stuff, be the person writing the critical stuff, I thought that's a really narrow-minded way to respond. But I do have some sympathy slash empathy for people who say, look, this building a company is different than writing about a company. Yeah. It sounds like you're in that camp, even more so now. Yeah. I mean, I do think there was a, an additional level of empathy that I got. Although, you know, I was early enough with TechCrunch and kind of help building TechCrunch that I had experienced some of that. You know, but at the same time, I also think I was like became way more adversarial as a journalist once I was running Pando. So from the outside, I don't think people thought I got more sympathetic. Yeah. And what did you learn about media that, again, you were at TechCrunch while it was growing up, that, but the, running a media company that has surprised you? The biggest surprise is that we wound up being a subscription site because when we started um, and Paul started Not Safe for Work, he went that route and I didn't. And we had a lot of disagreements about it. He had a subscription it. service. Yeah. Right. And – and I think ultimately, I'm really glad things played out the way they were. They did because I don't think I think if Pando had started out subscription, we wouldn't have developed um, the 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 level and value of a brand that we did. And I think we sort of made that shift at the right time. What does a Pando subscription cost? Ten dollars a month. And when did you move to that? Uh, after we were threatened by Uber because they started threatening our advertisers, and we had to. And that has enabled you to become profitable now? Yeah. yeah. And we were – and we actually had a, a pretty good ad business because we had such a, you know, sort of small but but juicy group of people. And so we had – I don't know. Maybe – I think when we shifted, we had about eight, you know, big six-figure advertisers. We had several more teed up. I mean, we were actually building, you know, a pretty good scalable – ad business for, you know, for a small publication. But it just started to, as we got more adversarial towards the industry, we started to feel that thing where, um, you know, who's your customer and who's your product. And, you know, if you're an ad supported company, then your, your readers are your product and your customers are your advertisers. And the direction that we thought the Valley was going like that was not going to be a t- t- a lot of folks have reached that conclusion, right? Like, yeah. oh, subscription business looks good. So there's a there's a renewed interest in in selling yeah. stuff directly, both for there's media startups and media it. companies. Yeah, which is really nice. Do you feel like your readers are going to be at some point saying, "Well, look, you, you're asking me to pay for Pando and the information <laughs> and I don't know, Wall Street Journal," and at some point, I'm I'm going to stop subscribing to things. And by the way, I'm already yeah. paying for Netflix and Hulu and whatever else, and I'm going to get the rest of it from free media. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, we're lucky in that we're we're in a vertical where people expense it. So I don't think really individuals are paying for us that much. And in fact, in January, we had this big legal bill we had to pay. And we've had a bunch of like sort of frivolous law, lawsuit threats we've had to fight off. And this was another one of them. And they're annoying and they cost money, but it's part of, you know, running the kind of company that we do. But, you had a number there. You said four hundred million dollars in, in in lawsuits over six years. Yeah, and, that's that's what damages lawsuits, people. Yeah. Uh, actual lawsuits or, or threats lawsuits. of lawsuits. No, they're okay. always baseless. You just have to spend tens of thousands of dollars showing that you're going to fight it, and then it, they don't actually file it. Peter Thiel is one of your backers. 
Yep. Okay. So obviously you know where I'm going with this. Uh, <laughs> Peter Thiel bankrupted Gawker because he got this judgment. Um, but even had he not gotten the judgment right, he would have, it turns out, because he was bankrolling the Hulk Hogan thing, could have tied up Gawker for yeah. years, right? Spending millions of dollars, which is literally nothing for him since he's a billionaire, and could have been just as debilitating for Gawker. Um, so as a publisher and as a journalist, what's your discussion with Peter Thiel about that, his role in that? We have not spoken. Literally since? Since. Well, that happened about the same time as him supporting Donald Trump. and We have not spoken. Um, he was an investor, right? Is an investor? Yeah. Did you consider returning his money? I mean, we didn't have the money to return his money for one thing. But um, no, we didn't consider it. And we had and we talked about this a lot because we had people ask us about it. So he I mean, he wasn't directly an investor. Founders Fund was an investor. And he actually I initially went to him because I knew him and we had been friends. And he said, you know, I would love to invest, but I have to give right a first refusal to Founders Fund. And they actually took it from Peter. And um, it was actually Brian Singerman who did the deal. Uh-huh. So it wasn't quite as neat and clean as Peter Thiel wrote us a check. Yeah. He would have had Founders Fund not taken it. Because um, you reference him in, your, in here as someone who gave you good advice at one point. He did. We, he was one of my favorite people in Silicon Valley for a really long time. That's yeah. been a really – painful. So you stopped speaking last summer, I guess, last spring or a year ago last? Actually, I don't remember the last time that we talked, but... Did you have a breakup? Did you say, I am no longer speaking to you because of Gawker or because of Trump? No. He's... I don't know how well you know Peter, but it's like he's not, not at all. he's not really someone who has those like emotional friendly conversations. Like That's what I, I hear. know even from like what I've heard between conversations that have happened between he and Reed Hoffman, who he's super close to. I, I remember even when I, I interviewed uh Max Levchin who he founded PayPal with. And I asked Max, you know, well, what it, what is the conversation you've had with Peter about Trump? And he's like, we haven't talked about it. Like, he's not someone who has a lot of, like, real emotive personal conversations, even with people he's close to. When you launched Pando, you went and got a bunch of money from a bunch of different VCs. And you said, obviously, we're going to have conflicts of interest with all of them. Yeah. And that's the point. Yes. We'll have so many conflicts of interest that no one can blame us and no one can accuse us of having conflicts of interest. As you're starting this company, you're not going to be writing about tech companies. Uh, but there is a renewed or new scrutiny about who, where yeah. your money is coming from and where does that money actually come from. And when you take money from DST, what is, yeah. is that from Putin? So how are you thinking about funding this project? Do you want investors? We did. So we raised a seed round and we, ha- we have about 13 investors and only two white men. So we raised a very different seed you round than went, we did for Did Pando. that intentionally? Yeah. Said we would like women, we would like people who are not white men. Women, people of color, and, you know, and and people who we just, it was less we don't want white men in this company. It was more we wanted people who really were going to be aligned with this mission and felt like this mission was really important because there were a lot of people who thought the mission of Pando was important and said it was. And I think there's probably half of my investors I don't speak to now. It's a rough world out there. In the yeah. media, media tech sector, there's six. It's been a hard six years, and I think it's going to continue to be that way for a lot of people. I mean, we're seeing every day really ugly stories come out about what VCs have been doing to women, about what they've looked turned a blind eye to. Um, you know, I mean, look, if you're in my house one day holding my children and saying you want to invest in my company because you think my fierce adversarial truth telling is so important and then you're totally cool with your portfolio company threatening those same children the next day like I don't know what you are but you're certainly not a friend to me and you're certainly not a human being either do you think we've we're recording this early November mid-November we've had a couple months now stories about sexual harassment abuse sexual misconduct is the new weird euphemism for masturbating in front of women at a club <laughs> I don't get that they're generally about media personalities and people in media companies generally in the Acela corridor and then there's some VC Silicon Valley stuff and now we're moving into politics but it, it's really been a lot of tech and media stuff do you think there's something particular about those industries that those incidents have happened there or particular about those industries where we're hearing reports about it or do you think we're going to hear about this in every industry well I think one thing that's very similar about Hollywood and Silicon Valley is you have Small numbers of gatekeepers who control a lot of what gets produced and what doesn't get produced. So, so you it's know, not just they have money and there's that power yeah. imbalance. They are, they can actually turn stuff on and off. Right. And it's also these small partnerships. I mean, like a firm like Benchmark has like five or six partners 
that just sit around and make these decisions. So it's like they don't have a big HR team. They don't, you know, they aren't these big multi-layered organizations. And, you know, they also haven't had a lot of scrutiny and a lot of expectation that they have to have that. And I think it's kind of similar when it comes to movie producers. I mean, it's frequently like one individual. I think both with Hollywood and Silicon Valley too, there's been this kind of like, asshole excuse and this like oh he's a creative genius so it's fine that he's an asshole and I think there's been a lot of forgiveness of bad behavior in the name of being a creative genius that you probably can't have in a lot of sectors I think one reason we've seen more of it out of Hollywood than out of the valley right now is you know 3% of venture-backed companies have female CEOs. There just aren't that many women who are even getting funding in the first place, whereas almost every movie is going to have an actress. I mean, there's more women who are part of the Hollywood Mm -hmm. economy because of what that product is than there are women part of the startup economy. But I think there's something about that celebration of rogue, disruptive, asshole, creative male ego that, you know, I mean, you have so children. You do think if you is... don't put rules on your children, what happens? Oh, like this morning. Um, <laughs> save that for the different parent I'm podcast. jealous of your chaos this morning. I hate when I'm away from my kids. Uh, you can you can pick my kids up from school. <laughs> All right. We could go on for a long time. I want to bring it back to the book for one last question here. You were talking about diversity in, in, in the Valley and, and how there isn't any. Mm-hmm. And lots of head scratching and lots of earnest. We need to fix this. And you say, no, it's easy to do this. Everyone says it's hard. You say it's easy. You hire diverse teams early on, hire and promote women and people of color from the beginning. The talent is there. The desire on the part of the industry's gatekeeper simply isn't. Mm -hmm. So you're saying when you hear various VCs, when you hear CEOs saying, yeah, I'd like to fix it, but Jeff Bezos reportedly said something effective. We'd like to hire more women in positions of power, but – Got all these dudes here. You're saying this is easy to solve. Not, it's not brain surgery. I think compared to the other things the tech industry does, yeah. You're telling me it is harder to hire a woman of color than it is to launch rockets into space, to beam internet down from planes and satellite, to build virtual worlds, to create companies that where you know the the audience is larger than any world nation. I mean, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. When Silicon Valley leaders tell you something is too hard, whether that's figuring out something's real news or fake news or whether it's finding more women to hire, what they're telling you is they don't prioritize it because this is an industry that by its definition looks for hard problems to solve, looks to find new ways to do things. So you think they are genuinely not interested in solving it? I think it's not a priority. Right. So whether or not it's because they're they're pro-patriarchy or they just don't care, you just think – they don't care enough to fix it. Yeah. When Mark Zuckerberg announces uh, in his earnings call last month that he's really taking the Russia stuff seriously, do you take that at face value? That's hard to know. I've had a lot of discussions, as I'm sure you guys have, with people inside Facebook right now. And that is a company in the middle of an existential crisis that I have never seen at that company. Unlike someone like Uber, which has always been really happy to kind of be hated and has always had an us versus them mentality, even when most people thought it was amazing. Facebook has never been that company. They seem genuinely confused that people are questioning them. And I I, I know a lot of people inside that company are genuinely horrified at what they may have done and unleashed. What they built. And what do they need to do as a company and how they get out of this so I hope they're taking it seriously. Want to come back and have a second podcast discussion about yes! that? Yes. All right, deal. You got to go promote a book. I will let you go. Thank you for your time. Thank I know you it's for precious. Having me. Thank you guys for listening. You know, all we ask is one thing from you is that you tell someone else about this podcast. It's it's word of mouth that gets this into other people's ears. So thanks for your help. If you like watching this stuff live, we can accommodate that. There's the Code Media Conference February 12th and 13th in sunny California. We have great guests. You can read about them at Recode.net. Kara Swisher and I will be there. Thanks to our sponsors, and thanks to Cadence 13, who brings those sponsors to Recode Media, so you can listen to it for free. Thanks to my producers, Beth O'Connell and Eric Johnson, and my editor, Chris Basil. This is Recode Media. I will see you next week. What does machine learning have to do with autonomous driving? How do you build a powerful open-source community? Will the cloud really consume the world? Tune in to Stack That, a new podcast from Hewlett Packard Enterprise, to dive into the world of emerging trends and learn how you can leverage this tech for the benefit of your business. 
Each week, our hosts Byron Reese of GigaOM and Florian Leibert of Mesosphere will tackle a new topic with the help of guests from Airbnb, Google, Confluent, and other industry experts. Check out Stack That on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and news.hbe.com. And make sure to subscribe so you don't miss the latest episodes.